Previously on the Tony Kornheiser Show. Now, I was thinking of you because it was a movie. Yeah. Watching him walk over the Swoken Bridge on a gorgeous Friday afternoon. And the other two guys he was with let him go alone. They let him go alone. It was such respect. Absolutely. I had a drink that night with Joe Latava, who's his caddy. He's a very good friend of mine. And I said, what's the protocol there? What was that like? He said, oh, you just stand about 20 yards back and about 30 yards to the right and allow him to have that moment all the way to himself. This is General George Washington, and you're listening to the Tony Kornheiser Show. That was Steve Sands from yesterday's show. He was eloquent. Got this email from Teresa LaHaye in Springfield, Missouri. When the show pops up on my podcast feed, for some reason I always note how long the show is. Maybe because I want to know how long the best hour of my podcast will be, day will be. Or maybe I'm looking for an interesting combination of numbers. Well, two things can be true at the same time. Today, meaning yesterday, I saw that 70 minutes at Uncle Benny's table was waiting for me. And since it was the Monday after the Open, Wilbon would be talking hoops and probably track and field, and Sansi would talk about golf. But he didn't just talk about it. He painted some visions of what is so glamorous about the Open Championship. And to your great credit, you let him tell long, interesting stories. And that was just great, and I thank you for that. My dad was a golfer. His job in the Army in the early 50s was to keep the golf courses in Germany safe for Eisenhower. And by extension, <laughs> so were his six children. Only one of us plays, but we text back and forth with each other during majors, talking about all the things my dad would be teaching us. He wasn't the nicest human, but he left us with one unbreakable bond for life. He would have loved to listen to Sansi's story from Rusax and beyond. So I thank you both for bringing him back to us for a few moments. Yesterday's show made me very happy. Really did. I mean, Wilbon, of course, was on the moon about uh, Summer League, which I, you know, I wouldn't. If it was played in my backyard, I'd go and close the blinds. <laughs> that's just me. But Wilbon loves it, so that's important. Yes. And Sands was great on the open. One more to read from Joe Atkinson from Syracuse, New York, where he says every other driveway has a Subaru. I've been listening to you since I lived in Baltimore in the 90s. I have a lifelong love of newspapers and columnists. So my close friend sent me recent photos of himself with Woodward and Bernstein I had to write. My friend Jeremy has restaurants in New York City on the Upper West Side, as well as Fuel Pizza restaurants in D.C. and Charlotte, North Carolina. Michael, do you know Fuel Pizza at all? I don't. Looking it up right now. Okay. Oh, yeah, this looks like it's down down by Cap One Center. Okay, all right. We grew up a block off the Syracuse campus, and he was a ball boy, ball boy when Jim Beheim took over the program, and they are good friends today. In fact, when the coach needs a restaurant table in the New York City area, he calls Jeremy. While golfing the other day at the New York Country Club, we are lowly public course people. I've noticed you have mentioned various private courses in the Binghamton area, but I suggest a beautiful public course, Conklin. I know where Conklin is. Conklin is the first town over the Pennsylvania to New York state line. That's the town of Conklin. Anyway, on 81. Anyway, he tells me the other day his employee from his recently acquired restaurant in D.C. called him and said a woman named Sally Quinn wanted to talk with him. She wanted the restaurant, the Post Pub, to cater an event for her, which he did. I'm writing because the menu desperately needs updating. I know Wilbon was a regular, so I assume you have been there and know the sandwiches are named after famous reporters and columnists. However, I'm not sure people who are still of working age know who Jack Anderson, Art Buckwald, Red Smith, and Shirley Povich are. I'm wondering if we can update the menu with a Kornheiser and a Wilbon, and I'll work on getting you some free food. That's nice, but one of the things that's great about newspapers is the inherent history and lineage of newspapers. And you got to know who Jack Anderson was, because he was the first great investigative reporter. 
And you got to know who Art Buckwald was because he was the first great humor columnist. And you got to know Red Smith <laughs> and Shirley Povich because they're the greatest sports writers of all time. So Joe Atkinson, I love you, but you got to know those people. And if people of a younger age don't know them, the hell with them. <laughs> but on the other hand, if there's a Wilbon and Kornheiser sandwich, it'll make me happy. Because yes, I have frequented the Post Pub in my life. Yes, it was very nice. I'm glad to... Is it your brother, Jeremy, who owns it? Or your friend, Jeremy, who owns it? Good for him. Congratulations to him. Two things to talk about today. To talk about before we talk to the guests, Mark Feinstein and Barry's Verluga. One is... There was a report in the New York Post yesterday, it has not been denied, so I assume it is true, that David Faraday was leaving NBC. He just got to NBC a few years ago. He started on CBS in the United States. He was leaving NBC to do the Saudi tour, to be the analyst for the Saudi tour. I don't know where they're on TV. I know they're on YouTube channels and stuff like that, but I don't know that they have a television contract or a cable contract, but they'll get one. Sure, they'll get one. And Michael, I wondered what you thought about this. David Faraday is... It's quite amusing. He's quite good. He was a pretty good player himself. I think he played on Ryder Cup, right? Did he play Ryder Cup once or twice, Michael? Yeah, I'm pretty sure he was in the war by the shore. Yeah. So what do you think of him going over? Because I have specific thoughts. So you you mentioned him as the sort of on-course or the in-booth person. I think for most sports fans, you'd actually go to what he was doing on the Golf Channel for probably close to a decade with his interview show the sort of fireside yep. chat where he got these pros Good show. who all seemed local and he'd do a he would do a sort of a, a sit down essay to lead into it and then you'd see a side of these golfers that you really never saw before this was before a lot of them were in social media uh and now you're seeing them shared probably a little bit too much but to me he just represents the the golfing establishment because he's he has the he has the playing pedigree he, he is uh he is funny he's personable he's a name and a yes. voice that people recognize uh, you know, he, he doesn't have the championship pedigree of, say, a Faldo or even an Azinger, but uh, he definitely breaks that barrier and, and he meets the he meets what they're looking for in that he's a little bit more than just golf insider. He's storyteller. But I sort of always thought he was uh, he might have been a little bit uh, sort of out of the way for this just because he's such good friends with Rory. It strikes me, I have to say, as odd. Faraday's really good. Um, I don't know what he gets paid, but I'm sure it's a lot of money relative to what a guy is getting paid for driving an Amazon truck or what a guy is getting paid for running the Amazon warehouse or anybody up the ladder except the guy who owns Amazon. <laughs> yeah, he's getting paid very well. And he's very good. I met him once, I think. Maybe once. Don't even remember if I met him. But I know this about him because I've been in his company at events. He is dedicatedly pro the United States military. I don't know where this comes from because he's not American. He's Irish, right, Michael? Is he Irish, I think? Yes. Yeah. But he loves the American military and does benefits for them all the time. All the time. If they have a golf tournament, David Faraday will do the golf tournament. He'll do the after-dinner speech. He'll do everything. He, and again, I don't know how this happened, but I'm pretty confident in what I'm saying here that he's very enamored of, dedicated to, and respectful of the United States military. So I guess, and maybe this is a far afield thought, I guess I'm a little surprised because I don't know that Saudi Arabia um, is involved with the United States, you know, the United States military in such a way that would make that an easy way to go. On the other hand, 
The president of the United States is over in Saudi Arabia making deals. And I've said this before, too. If you don't want to take the money, you think the money's tainted. I think the money's tainted. That's just me. You don't want to take the money, don't take the money. But if your government's doing business with them, it's hard, it's hard for me to look around and say you shouldn't do business with them. And I'm talking about American citizens now. I'm not talking about British citizens or French citizens or Australian citizens. That, they do what they want to do. I mean, I, I can't speak to that. And I can only sort of speak to what it might be like for an American and the PGA Tour aimed really at Americans more than anybody else. Am I off base here, Michael, do you think? No, not at all. And I, I think the timing for this makes it a bit uh, more nuanced. I mean, you're, you're going back to the fist bump that everyone's been breaking down over the weekend. And, and if you go back to Faraday and what that uh, essay show brought him was he was the most sort of pre-approved uh, commodity that the that these companies, particularly American companies, were investing in with that show. And then he also became the face on a lot of commercials that were running sort of, you know, yeah. in the breaks of all these uh, all these PGA Tour events. You're thinking about the travelers and all that. Yeah. So I and I like David Faraday. Um, and the other, this also then, somebody says, when they hear this, they go, well, did you see the thing about Barkley? Did you see that Barkley said he was open to talking to the Saudi tour about it? He'll everything? talk to anybody. And Charles, will, Michael, sorry, Charles will talk to anyone about anything. You're looking at your phone? Well, yeah, 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 he said, basically he said, well, you have to explore every opportunity. Okay. But then he had a great quote, because he was talking about the money that Phil Mickelson got. And he said, they said, Phil got $200 million and Dustin Johnson, or Dustin and, and Justin got $150 million. For $150 million, I'll kill a relative, even one I like. Yeah. <laughs> That's so I also think that Charles, who I know a little bit, is a reasonable man. Yes. And I think that at some point, some people will get in Charles's ear and they'll go, Chuck? People love you to death. This may hurt you. You may not want to do it. Go to TNT and ask them for more money. See what they say. Because <laughs> they're not going to want to lose you. Right. Or declare yourself a free agent. Which gets me to the next topic. Which is Juan Soto. And I don't want to take up a lot of time from Barry's Verluga. So I'm going to say this now. And this is what I would say to him. But he'd probably be able to eat a sandwich in the time it would take me to say this. I don't know much about life. I don't. But I know how to write a column. I know what the column is. I know how that works. I did it for a long time. If you're a columnist in Washington, D.C. for the Washington Post, regardless of the national tug that the Washington Post has on the collective conscience of people, your job should be to care about the citizenry in Washington, D.C. That's your job. A lot of guys on that paper don't. Barry Sverluga does. I was a little surprised to find out he was out in Los Angeles. And then I realized, of course he's out in Los Angeles. Juan Soto's in Los Angeles. Look, there are four pro teams in Washington, D.C. It's one of the cities that has four. There's about 15 cities that have four. They're the elite sports cities. And let's go team by team here. Let's talk about the football team which had a hold on the city for 50 years like no other team in no other city other than the Denver Broncos. That's how important the Washington team was. I'm not going to call them the commanders. I can't use the previous name, so I'll just call them the Washington football team because I like that name. They don't have a single player now that matters. Not one. Chase Young might have mattered, had a great rookie year, hasn't played. 
Like, all we know about him is he's still advertising Mercedes-Benz in Arlington. That's all we know. And he likes his family. He's had no impact on the football field. And don't tell me about Terry McLaurin and the contract he signed because he's a dependent player. If the quarterback can't get him the ball, he's useless. So let's eliminate the Washington football team as having any player who's important. Let's go to the basketball team. Basketball team just signed Bradley Beal to a $250 million contract over five years. He is absolutely not worth this money. Bradley Beal is a guy who appears to be content with scoring a lot of points on a team that loses all the time. Since John Wall left, and it's indisputable that Bradley Beal is the most important player, what's their record? It's nothing. It's nothing. So Bradley Beal's not important, and nobody else on that team at the moment is important. The hockey team has a very important player, Alexander Ovechkin. He's one of the greatest players of all time, and he helped lead the team to a Stanley Cup victory, which is phenomenal. He's in decline. You wouldn't know it because his goal scoring is really good, but he's 36, whatever he is. He's not the future. He's barely the present. He's mostly the past. He doesn't matter as much as Juan Soto. Juan Soto matters more than everybody else in the city who's an athlete. It's not close. It's not close. He matters. And for him to win the home run derby last night, of course, recalls Bryce Harper. Bryce Harper won the home run derby. And what happened after that? Bryce Harper left. So we start with Bryce Harper, and we go to Trey Turner and Max Scherzer, who were traded, and we go to Anthony Rendon, who walked, and these were the four best players. And you're going to say, well, what about Strasburg? Again, the most important ability is availability. He's not available. He's not. He's a guy you go, oh, yeah, what happened to him? That's all you can really say. What happened to him? Soto, if Soto leaves, they trade Soto. Boy, oh, boy. I mean, you're just, you're just looking at a line of great players. Their best players. A line not here anymore. And I don't know, I don't know what you say to fans. I don't know who buys the team. I don't know how it works. But that's why Barry Zerluga is in Los Angeles to write about Juan Soto because there's no more important player in Washington, D.C. in any sport than Juan Soto at the moment. He's the column. He's always the column. Right, Michael? Right? He's the column all the time. Every day. To- totally. And it's not just that he won. It's how he won. It's not just that he might walk at you know in a couple of years. It's that he might be traded in the next couple of weeks. You look at the breakdown of the players and you look at uh, J-Rod, you look at Acuna Jr., you look at, uh, you look at Juan, and you look at how they walked out, and you just looked at the fun that they have, the way they interact with each other, even versus the stoicism of a Schwarber, uh, you know, of, of Alonzo. And even of Pujols, and you just say there's this kinetic energy there that connects him to the city. I mean, we recorded this last night so our kids can watch it. You see him come out with the with the robot stunner shades as if he's trying to keep all this personal news, you know, behind close to the vest, and he can't, and he can't contain it. And then you look at how he actually wins the home run derby. They said he lefty was not going to be able to win it because of right field, and everyone else is getting their pitches in to try and, of course, try and pull it, save some energy. He's doing live batting practice, trying to splatter the balls 
around the entire <laughs> outfield. And you go, who's doing that? He's actually using this to get ready for the second half. And then you start looking at him as he's going through the uh, the shadows that are coming across that field. And you start to go, he's just trying to hit a home run into every fan's uh, you know living room around the country as he's trying to show what we've come to know and love so much here, uh, you know, even before that World Series run. There's a line in... Um Broadcast News, a movie I like a lot that Albert Brooks delivers. And he says of somebody, another character in it, I think he's the devil. And um, the woman who he's talking to just gives him a quizzical look. Why would you say that? And Albert Brooks says, well, what do you think he's going to look like? Scott Boris is the devil. And he can say, well, he signed Strasburg here. And you go, yeah. And Strasburg doesn't pitch. He, he gave him the kiss here. of the devil, you know, and it, he doesn't pitch. But the others, he just takes away. He just takes them away. We'll ask Feinsand about this. We'll ask Verluga about this. We'll be back. I'm Tony Kornheiser. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You're listening to The Tony Kornheiser Show. This is the late, great, hot pink hangover. They broke up. I love this band. I mean, I just think they're terrific. I'm so sorry they broke up. Yeah, I know. Hope they get back. I don't know why bands break up. Well, you can't, you can't have the reunion tour if you don't I don't understand break why up. the Beatles broke up. <laughs> I, I don't understand it. That, yeah. Rolling Stones never broke up. No. Beach Boys never broke up. No. Yeah. No, I don't understand it. All right. Hot pink hangover. It's got a great title. Dance Till We're Dead. <laughs> Place in Barry's Verluga. You heard me. I'm just going to tell you this, Barry. I mean, I'm telling everybody, but I did a whole long introduction on why, if you're the sports columnist at the Washington Post, why you'd be in L.A. for the All-Star Game. Whatever other reason you might have to be there, the number one reason, and the column today and tomorrow and the next day and all week until it's a settle is Juan Soto. He is the most important player in Washington, D.C. in any sport. It is not even close. He's what... It, this is about, and winning the home run derby just accentuates that and underlines that. So I'll ask the, the first question. I'll commend your column today that I've already read online, but I will ask this question, and you talk about this. How do you turn down $440 million? Well, I'll say to start, Tony, the reason that number is out there is so that People like you and people who pay for tickets can say, how do you turn down $440 million? It sounds like and is an absurd total. The other side of that equation, and this is the Scott Boris side, and people don't like to hear this side because it, it likely means that their favorite player, the, the last vestige of not just a, a World Series champion, but, but a, a decade of competing to get to that World Series championship um, could well be 
a free agent in 2024 or, you know, maybe even worse, traded within two weeks. And that is that he believes, and that it's not just Scott Boris who believes this. This is Scott, Juan Soto who believes this. He believes that he has a worth, Juan Soto has a worth, um, because of his age, because of his ability, the, and because of the point in his career, which is very much like Alex Rodriguez, who came up as a, a teenager with the Seattle Mariners and had Scott Boris as an agent and was never going to resign with the Seattle Mariners because the Texas Rangers were out there with, at that time, $252 million that sounded completely absurd. And there was an understanding um, or a, a gamble on the Rodriguez-Boris part then and on the Soto-Boris part now that it's not just about that total number of $440 million, but it's about a historic average annual value that would you know, be, I think Boris thinks it should be north of $45 million a year um, because that's what you know, Max Scherzer was something like $43 million a year over three years. Um, it's hard to figure out how that works over a term of 13 or 14 or 15 years. But, but they're looking at, at history. They're looking at recentering the market. Um, and you can take either side of this. Um, my, my take, and it's a terrible take for a columnist, is that this is, this is impossible, that, that the Nationals are in a terrible spot, although they have made what they needed to make, which was at least an offer that, that broke some barriers. And, and, and it is more than Mike Trout's total package of $426 million. million. Um, but, you know, you're completely right that a week ago, the Nationals were just bumbling to the All-Star break. They had one reason to turn on the TV every night. They're the, they have the worst record in baseball. Now they're at the center of the sports universe in a very difficult predicament with who I think is the best hitter in the game, who has two years and two months left in their employ if they don't do anything. Um, the smart baseball thing might be to trade that player, that 23-year-old player, for an impossibly rich um you know, haul on the way back. Um, but it's not just a baseball decision. There are emotions involved here, too. So it's just, it's a very, very difficult spot. Let me go step by step. They own his rights for two years and two months. They don't have to trade him now. They can sit and wait on this if they want to. It wouldn't be them necessarily because there'd be a new ownership. How serious, in your estimation, how serious are the Nats about trading Juan Soto now? And whose decision is this? Is it Mark Lerner's decision? Is it Mike Rizzo's decision? Whose decision? Is it Ted Lerner's decision? So um, let's go step, step by step. Um, I think that they are serious about finding out what they could get in return. And that is not, that is different from we have to trade him, it is, in fact, only responsible. If they did not, if they said we're not taking any calls on Juan Soto, I, I don't think that that is the responsible baseball protocol, given what they have. Right now, Tony, 
this is not this is worse of a rebuild than I think we thought. In in part because, you know, who's up? Luis Garcia is up. Victor Robles is, doesn't appear to be part of the future anymore. Patrick Corbin can't pitch. Steven Strasburg is broken. Um, they're bad, and they the parts that they signed in hopes of flipping at the deadline and, and getting prospects and refilling their um, farm system, they're not going to get a ton for them. They have one player that would not single-handedly um, in, you know, just stock the farm system, but would go a long way toward saying, okay, we have solutions at several positions going, going forward. Um, so I think they have a responsibility to, responsibility to explore that. I do think that the ownership question hangs over everything. It has to hang over everything because, well, it appears that the learners would like their legacy to be, we won a world series and we locked up Juan Soto for, you know, the rest of his career. Um, that this could be their last and final offer, and I don't know that that's 100% true. I'm presuming that that's, it's pretty darn close. Um, but it doesn't have to be the best and final offer of a new ownership. Now, did, does anybody want this hanging over them and hanging over the whole franchise, and in fact hanging over the whole sport going, going forward? Probably not. I mean, the fact of the matter is Juan Soto is worth more in trade today than he is next week or the week after because a team in a pennant race wants him for as long as they can get him. And the price would, I mean, it's not going to go down significantly day to day, but, but the point is if you get him now, you've got him for three pennant races. Um, and that to a contender matters uh, a ton. If, if the, there's a price that the nationals feel like, look, nobody's reached what we think he's worth. You're completely right. They don't have to trade him. It will be mm-hmm. awkward going forward. They could say, we need to find out who's going to own the team and what, what that person or that group thinks, and maybe they have a different view of things. I mean, there, that's a layer of confusion that has not entered into one of these situations that I can recall um, in the past. So um, it's very, very difficult. I think anybody who wakes up and said, well, they're absolutely going to trade him, I don't think that's right because we don't know – we don't know what other teams would be offering in return, even though it would have to be a bold offer. Um, they might see that the Nats are backed into a corner and not be willing to give up what Mike Rizzo and, and the baseball operations staff thinks is a fair return. And then as to whose decision it is, I, I have to believe there's an ownership element to it. It is, it is Mike Rizzo's job and his staff's job to get in place the baseball part of the decision. This is the move that we could make. These are the, what we think of these players coming back. This is how we would look in two years, but it's got, it was with Bryce Harper in 2018, the baseball operations staff put a trade in place with Houston. Mark Lerner could not pull the trigger. Bryce Harper remained in that for the remainder of that season and left in free agency. So, so many elements at play. Two things I'm sure of. One, you're never going to hear this discussion on the air when the Nats games are on. They haven't mentioned it yet. They're not going to mention it. They'll praise him for winning the home run derby, and they'll conveniently ignore the fact that he could be traded by the end of the third inning. That's one thing I'm sure of. And the second thing I'm sure of, and I am sure of this, is I don't care what you get back. 
fans are going to be very, very, very reluctant to embrace this team because it's a line. It starts with Harper. Yes, they won the World Series without Harper. It's Harper. It's Turner. It's Scherzer. It's Rendon. And then it would be Soto. And people will just say, what are you doing? I'm sure of that. You can get all the prospects in the world. The, in- the initial reaction will be, this is terrible. Don't you think? Well, I think you're exactly right. that, And I, I, this, I struggle with this a lot because I think you could go through all those individuals' circumstances and say, I understand how that happened. You can defend them. Un- you can defend yeah. them. And, Absolutely, and you, can, you can. But But then you walk back to 30,000 feet and you say, why is this team, why is this franchise that competed for a division title every year since, you know, for essentially from 2012 to 2019, why is it a low market Oakland A's feeder system for other franchises that, um, you know, they, they've had a competitive payroll. They've been up there. They, they've done it. They've, they've won. They won the biggest prize. They competed every year to try to get there. Um, how did this happen in totality? And, and that's, you know, that's the one I can't get my arms around because when you do start to break it down, you're like, well, I get, I get where that, how that happened. Um, but if Juan Soto is not a national on August 3rd, 2022, um, I do think it's fair to to be upset and 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 I, I mean I put this in my column this morning like you know taking emotions out of sports it certainly helps you make better business decisions like ask Bill Belichick about that like in, in general taking the emotions out makes makes sense you can't ask the fan base who your your job is to get them to invest emotionally and with their time and with their money. To, to take emotions out of trading away a kid. This is the, this is who you want. You want the kid you brought to the big leagues as a teenager and who hit a home run in his second big league in bat and who took Garrett Cole deep uh, and, and just was the guy that October that had the hit against Milwaukee and, and um, made Nats Park explode in a way that it hadn't, that it had been so nervous for so long because the playoffs had gotten so poorly until Juan Soto got that hit against the Brewers in the wild card game. That's who you want. So um, I can absolutely understand and perhaps even advocate for uh, a very, very good package in return and say they're now better off for the future um, because they have solutions at whatever places they they traded for. Um, but that doesn't mean that, that it's not going to be hard for people to, you know, where's Juan Soto going to go and when's he going to come back to Nats Park? And, and, and ha- we've written about all those guys who have come down that ramp into the park and instead of walking straight into the home clubhouse and taking a left into the visiting clubhouse and, and had to tip their cap in a gray road uniform to the fans they used to play for. Stinks. Stinks if you lose this kid. You know, I still, I mean, I'll get off this soapbox. I don't know how you turn down $440 million. I mean, I just don't know how that happens. Let me move off this, because you wrote something the other day that I really liked a lot. It was about Rory McIlroy, and it addresses the issue of whether or not he will ever win another major. 
how deep is the wound from this one? Because this is, this is in his country. He's had three great rounds. He's going to win. All he has to do is beat Victor Hovland. He beat Victor Hovland, and as Steve Sands said yesterday, and then got run over by the truck that was Cam Smith. Um, we all like Rory. This one feels like I don't know that you come back from this one. What do you think? Well, I, I think it's, it is the most scarring, and there are you know different versions of this for Rory over the years. The first one came before he even won a major when he blew the four-shot lead at the Masters in, in yeah. 2011. But he was, you know, he was a bouncy kid then. He came right back. He won the U.S. Open at Congressional. And by the end of 2014, he was 25 and he had four majors. And people established, not me, not you, but like Jack Nicholas was saying, oh, he could win as many as he wants, like as long as he keeps his focus. And that's the funny thing, like, he he hasn't broken as a player. Like Brooks Kepka won four majors in a in a very small period, and now he's like missing cuts regularly at majors. His body's broken. He's gone to live. Like who who knows what becomes of him? Worry has done everything, and not only has he done everything, you know, being a Ryder Cup hero, um, winning FedEx Cup championships, winning all the other you know kind of big tournaments. He's been number one in the world. He's been top ten basically all that all that time he's consistently and constantly relevant um and he just it means so much to him that he has not been able to seize another one another major since since the pga in 2014 i think this one stings more for a few reasons one it's at st andrews and and you know golf and where it's played matters i mean it's just an emotional Home of golf, he loves it. He's he's played well there. He played well there this week. Um, I think it it stings because um, you know what did he do wrong on Sunday? Where is the shot that you go in 2011 at the Masters? He pulled the ball into the cabin's left of the tenth tee, and you're like, and you're and then hit it into the woods on 13. You're like, well, he you know he didn't deserve to do it um, on Sunday. He did not putt well, or I shouldn't even say that. He did not make any putts. Um, he lipped out, pick a number, four, five, six. Any of those fall, maybe he makes another one. You know, um, it, there's just things could have gone differently. But he, he hit every green. His driver was amazing. Um, he shot 70 when a guy that was four behind him shot 64. So there is the run over by a train element, but there's also the... I didn't respond and grab that train as it went by. And then the, the last thing that I think is, is a little bit hard to take is now with the way the major schedule falls, it's essentially mid to late July when the British Open ends. And it's a long time till the Masters and a long time until he feels like he's playing meaningful golf again because the PGA is no longer in August, it's in May. So uh, it's, it's, I, do I think he can come back? I, I do. He's just such a great player, and he's only 33. But each ma- major that goes by is a major that doesn't turn his total from four to five, and he's, he's hyper, hyper aware of that. Yeah, he's smart. He's sensitive. He's thoughtful. I think it has to kill him. I mean, and I root for him. I think a lot of people uh, root for him. All right, we'll be reading you on Soto for, as you know, certainly the next time you can exhale is August 3rd, right? I mean, you can't, you, you got to be there 
every, almost every day. You have that's the priority, I think. If you're writing a column for the Washington Post, I do. I'm sure you it's do not too, even, right? It's not even close. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. you know, yeah. I mean, that doesn't mean every day, but you're on call every day, and if this happens, yeah, and yes, there's a million angles. Yeah, Juan Soto, four hundred, turning down four forty, hoping to get more. Scary could be t- Tony Canigliaro. Somebody could hit him in the head, or he could be Mickey Mantle. He could, you know. Break his foot in a drain. I mean, wow. Thanks, Barry. Enjoy. Appreciate it, Tony. Thanks very much. It's, he's, he's right. Yes. Everything he says, is there's two sides to it. Yeah. I understand the other side. I don't agree with the other side, but I understand, I understand the other side. We'll take a break. Mark Feinstein will join us when we return about baseball as well. I'm Tony Kornheiser. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. You're listening to The Tony Kornheiser Show. I went to watch Federer and Nadal. Five games with power and with spin. Then their coaches sent relievers in. Then Tsitsipas played Ferret for a set and a half. And Isner Shapovalov finished out the match. I went to watch Ali Frazier at the Garden. After four good rounds, they said, I beg your pardon. Then Chevalo Bonavina for a couple rounds. And then Ken Norton knocked out Henry Cooper in the 10th. Dave Roberts is now managing everything. Dave Roberts is now managing the world. I went to see Nicholas and Palmer. After four holes, they gave way to Wise Cup and Lanny Watkins. They stayed until the 15th. Then Miller Barber beat Tom Watson by a stroke when Watson sailed it past the green. Dave Roberts is now managing everything. Dave Roberts is now managing the world. If Tony starts the show, Pablo can do the Bethesda Big Read, and Stugatz can read the emails. The great and brilliant Dan Byrne taking shot after shot at Dave Roberts for taking pitchers out way too early, time after time after time. And Dan writes, was reflecting today on how the show encourages such input and creativity from its listeners. Truly amazing. A testament to you all. Mark Feinstein is also, as is Barry's Verluga, out in L.A. for the All-Star Game. Let me start with the, with the home run derby and, you know, not just Soto winning and not just Rodriguez hitting 50,000 balls out. But, Mark, Albert Pujols so much better than I feared. You know, I mean, I feared Albert Pujols, even in the park he was familiar with. I feared he'd hit four or five, and he was much better. And I think that people like that. What do you think? You know, it was wonderful. For for the first uh, two minutes or so of his round, uh, in that first round, you're going, I, I hope yeah. he gets to ten, because... <laughs> It was, you know, looking like he might embarrass himself, and he was, you know, he was hitting those familiar line drive doubles down the left field line, but those don't count in this event. So, uh, but then, you know, he, he got enough to make it respectable, and then somehow Kyle Schwarber ties him, and Pujols comes out 
and and you know hit seven in one minute, and it was just miraculous. And you're like, well, Schwarber still probably is going to beat him, but at least Albert went out with a bang. And then no, he didn't. So uh, it was pretty cool. And then w- with Soto against Pujols, it looked like Soto might have been throwing it for a couple of minutes. Like it looked like uh, you know the old Chen Ho Park. Uh, you know, Cal Ripken situation, but then Soto said, hey, you know, this would be kind of fun. I'm going to hit a bunch of home runs, and obviously he went on and, and won the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, I'll get to Soto in a second. I, I mean, I I felt that the nicest moment of all of it was Schwarber going up to Pujols, doing the I am not worthy, and the two of them embracing. I mean, I don't know that they were ever teammates. I don't know how well they know each other. I just thought that was like transcendent for baseball, and or am I just being a ridiculous sentimentalist on that? No, I, I thought that was great, and and it was really organic that uh, all the play, all the all stars who were on the field when Albert finished his first round, they all came over to congratulate him, and uh, you know it was sort of a really nice moment of uh, of a bunch of professional baseball players coming over to pay their respects to a guy who was really. Uh, you know, had a wonderful Hall of Fame career, and uh, you know, Rob Manfred got this one right, uh, adding Albert Pujols and Miguel Cabrera to uh, you know to this All Star game uh, as you know sort of legacy players. Because uh, you you talked to players yesterday about Pujols and Miggy being here, and you can just tell the sense of respect and admiration that all these guys, especially the young ones, have for you know what what these two have accomplished throughout their careers. I think it's, yeah, I really thought it was a grand gesture on uh, baseball's part, on Manfred's part to include them. I think it was right. It's fitting, though, of course, it's Soto won. I'm, we just talked to Barry's Verluga at great length about this because it's a local story in Washington, obviously. But I'm going to assume that's the biggest story in baseball, the possibility. I mean, the, the turning down of $440 million, who leaks that to make themselves look good? Probably the Nats, probably not Soto. But I'm guessing on that, the turning of, down of that and then him being in play for a trade when he is the brightest, if not the brightest, one of the brightest young stars of the game. That's the biggest story in, surrounding the All-Star game, is it not? Or am I just being too local? Uh, no, that was the one I was assigned yesterday. So I'm going to like to think that was the biggest story of the day. Uh, yeah. You know, Soto, Soto said all the right things yesterday. He said everything you expected him to say. I'm focused on baseball. Uh, and, and, you know, this is out of my hands, it's their decision. Um, but at the same time, he made it clear that, uh, uh, you know, he, he wasn't happy about this. He said, I like to keep my stuff private. Um, you know, they said, you know, they, they said a month ago that they weren't going to trade me. Nobody's told me why that changed, but clearly something has. And, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to me now, obviously, to see whether or not he's moved before August 2nd or if this drags into the offseason and becomes an offseason trade thing or, or what, because, uh, you know, there are probably about 20, 22 teams that would, would love to have Juan Soto in their lineup for this, uh, you know, second half here. Mark, what's your best guess on that? Well, you know, I, I mean, it, it becomes complicated because of the new ownership, not an identified group yet. It, it all becomes pretty complicated. August 2nd is not complicated. August 2nd is a couple of weeks away. That's all it is. Do you think he'll be moved by then? Um, I would say there's a good chance, but it's not a lock. Because uh, right. even if they're not going to get an extension done, uh, you know, if, if the Nationals don't believe that they're getting enough back, 
for Juan Soto, they're not just going to, you know, there's not going to be a discounted trade because they feel pressure to move him. This isn't a situation where he's a free agent and they have to try to get something back for him. There's two more years before he can go anywhere. Uh, but that said, you figure trading Soto in a situation where he can still impact three postseasons for another team uh, would, would yeah. you know, enhance his value even more. Um, I don't know where he would wind up. Obviously, you think about the big markets, the Yankees, the Dodgers. I can't fathom that they would trade him within the division to the Mets, uh, but the Mets have you know, all the money in the world and, and a lot of really good prospects that they could make that happen. Um, I would be really interested to see some of the smaller market teams try to get involved because for two years they could pay Soto or even pay him for the rest of this year and next year, and then they right. trade him with one year to go. So like a team right. like Tampa Bay wouldn't even shock me uh, you know, if they decided that, that it was something that they wanted to look into. San Diego seems like a, a really obvious team uh, because A.J. Preller loves making the big move and probably feels a little pressure to win. But I think, you know, there are, there are a dozen teams out there that could probably make a legitimate case for themselves to go after Juan Soto in a trade. Well, you just, I wonder... Like, I mean, I'm, I prefer to see Scott Boris as the devil because of where I live, but I'm wondering, is there any sense, is he just going to make a deal for money? Will Juan Soto's feelings be considered? Does anybody know where Juan Soto wants to play? Does anybody have a sense of that down the road? Well, I think this is where the new ownership situation comes into play because the way that Boris put it yesterday was that right now it's called a ghost contract is what he referred to it as, meaning you don't know who the owner is going to be who's going to be inheriting right. that contract. You don't know right. what that guy's uh, intentions are going to be in terms of rebuilding versus contending. Um, and so, you know, a guy like Soto wants to be on a winning team, and, you know, you don't know what that's going to look like. Um, usually with Scott Boris clients, the money wins out over everything else, and whoever has the highest bid generally gets the player. Uh, when Once in a while, a player will say, well, I, I know they're offering a little more money, but I would rather play here. Um, so it's going to come down to whether Soto, uh, you know, puts his foot down. People always forget that the agent works for the player, not vice versa. And uh, if Soto decides that being in a winning situation is more important than getting every last dollar, that'll be interesting. Now, when it comes to uh, this contract that we're looking at with him, chances are it's going to be a contending, winning-type team that tries to overwhelm him with money. It's not, you're not going to see a, a sort of a, a middling or rebuilding team trying to you know, sign a guy for 450 or $500 million. Yeah. By the way, have you watched any of the Derek Jeter series? Have you watched that? The Captain? Have you uh, seen any of that? I have not. I did a very long interview for it, and I'm hoping that I made the cut because uh, it would be very disappointing to have sat in a chair for four hours and, and just Ooh. ended up on the cutting room floor. But, uh, no, I have not seen it. But the, the guy who directed it, Randy Wilkins, a uh, really bright guy, and, and uh, I was very impressed by him. Some people I know who have seen the first few episodes said it is very good, but I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing it. I liked it. Um, you know, and I was going to say, I'll give Alex Rodriguez this. He says, yeah, I said that. <laughs> you know, he always says, yeah, I said that, you know, and I'll stand by it. Um, they're not pals, and I, I understand that. I, you know, I'm, I don't know that I'll watch all of it. Um, okay, let me get to baseball for a second. We're halfway through. 
the American League East is the greatest division in the history of sports. It is. It's just unbelievably great. Other than that, other than being overwhelmed by the American League East, when you look at the standings, what one or two things jump out to you, Mark? Well, I think nothing jumps out quite as much as the Orioles being in it, but they are in that American League East you speak of, so I will not talk about them. I I think the disappointment of uh, a team like the Chicago White Sox stands out to me. Mm -hmm. Um, That division's terrible for the most part. I mean, Cleveland's hung in there uh, to put themselves in position to to maybe get to the postseason. And the fact that the AL West just continues to sort of plod along uh, for most of that division, you know, Seattle, another great story right now. And, I, and they were a team I thought was going to take that next step this year, uh, 14 in a row going into the break. We'll see if they can keep that up afterwards. Um, but yeah, I, I think just sort of the top heaviness of, of the American league. I, I don't think anybody looks at, at the Yankees and Astros and thinks there's another team in that league that's going to really be able to uh, you know, stop those two from, from colliding in the ALCS. And in the National League, you know, the Mets were, were the Yankees at one point, right? They were 10, right. 12 games they in first place, and now they're, they're fighting to hold on for dear life, but they are going to get Jacob DeGrom back, and I would assume that, uh, you know, the Billy Epler has a couple of moves up his sleeve for the deadline, and the Mets will add since they have an owner willing to pay up now. So, uh, you know, those, those are the things that stand out the top of my head. Leads to the get-out question on this. Who is most likely to be on another team? As you look around, who do you identify and say, this guy's going somewhere because he can help a team win? Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, Luis Castillo from the Reds is probably the best starter available. He'll go somewhere. Wilson Contreras from the Cubs, he will go somewhere. Uh, to me, the one guy who, who could be the, the game-changer is the guy we talked about at the top in Soto. Uh, you know, yeah. a week yeah. ago you yeah. looked at it and said, eh, I mean, there would be some, some guys who move who will help some teams, but there's not really that one big name that's going to really change any team's fortunes in a huge way. Juan Soto is that guy who could. The other guy I would keep an eye on, I don't think he gets traded, but he probably should, is Otani, because the Angels aren't going mm. anywhere. He's going to be a free agent mm. at the end of the 2023 season. I can't imagine he re-signs there and sort of for the same concept of if you're a, a contending team, you'd rather have Otani for two postseasons than one. Uh, the Angels could get a haul for him, but I'm not sure they would do it. Thank you, Mark. We'll wait and see if any of these things happen in Washington. Of course, we think Josh Bell is headed somewhere and maybe could help a little bit. We'll see. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Tony. Mark Feinstein, boys and girls. We'll take a break. We will have email and jingle when we return. I'm Tony Kornheiser. Check out our new NBA show, Beyond the Arc, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, where you can find me, John Gonzalez, NBA insider Bill Ryder, and Ashley Nicole Moss, five days a week talking all things NBA. Whether you're looking for insightful discussions, upbeat commentary, breaking news, interviews, or coverage of all the biggest stories in the NBA, our new show is the place to be five days a week. Download and follow Beyond the Arc on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. This is the Tony Kornheiser Show. The Tony Kornheiser Show. Here comes Tony's mailbag. Got your emails, 
but don't send in faxes. Thank you, Jason Fuse. Thank you very much. Nigel, you want to do the Bethesda Bagel ad? Yes, Bethesda Bagels. We love them. You will as well. Just go to the go to BethesdaBagels.com for the location in the D.C. area nearest you. Then pop on in and you'll be thrilled. That'll do it for us today. Before we get to the mailbag, let me just say, come on, everybody, take a trip with me down to Mississippi, down to New Orleans. I got the honeysuckle blooming on the honeysuckle vine and loves blooming there all the time. You know, every Southern Belle is a Mississippi queen down the Mississippi, down to New Orleans. I don't. Um, I know the song. Gary U.S. Gary Bonds. Gary U.S. Bonds. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yes. That's what I thought. That's wonderful. Gary U.S. Bonds. You know who reveres him and put him on albums early on? Bruce Springsteen. Really? Yes. Loves Gary U.S. Wow. Bonds. Did yes. not know that. Thanks to our guests today, Barry's Verluga, Mark Feinsand. Thanks to our sponsor, ZipRecruiter. Remember, you can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and Odyssey. If you get the show through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. From, How are the stakes, uh, Tom? Oh, the steaks last night. Yes, Nigel. Did Nigel, did Nigel eat in front of you? <laughs> Nigel ate a little bit. Um, <laughs> Nigel wanted his meat done a little bit deeper than I wanted my meat done, so I did it. I did it, Michael. And it was it was to perfection. Very good steaks. An outstanding meal. Got, we did, yes. couldn't get them. You know, we got them where we got them. The other place was closed. All right. From Tom. Tom, Tom in Fairfax. Just a suggestion to hope... To help the home run contest, why not just have the Nats bullpen pitch and tell them it's the eighth inning? <laughs> the only issue I see is it may not end before the actual All-Star game starts. That's good. From Rob in Copenhagen in Denmark, previously of Resta. Oh, Penham. Was Dave Barry one of the 1,300 at John Adams, or did he come in special for the prom? <laughs> That's funny. From Jay Yander on the same subject in Old Forge, Pennsylvania. I know where that is. My eyes lit up when I heard you utter John Adams High School during the closing of the Monday pod. My grandfather, George Yander, was a teacher and a coach at John Adams in the 50s and 60s after a career as a New York City firefighter. He raised his family in nearby Woodhaven, Queens, and later retired to Keene Lake in Wayne County, Pennsylvania, home of Camp Kiyuma. He passed away 20 years ago, but I remember so many great stories about the school. Perhaps Carol knew him. As always, thank you for brightening my day during each pod. You truly have no idea how much I enjoy listening to you and the crew. Carol just walked in. Did you know a guy named George Yander, a teacher and a coach at John Adams? No, she, she didn't play boys sports, she says. <laughs> Adim Shah in the great the mom's bringing the heat the last two days. Of Toronto, yeah. <laughs> Long-time listener since 2008 when we had to worry about cocktail fork impalement. I was wondering if it would be okay if we named a softball team. This team stinks in our league. You wouldn't have to pay sponsorship fees. I would cover it. I'd like to know if we could become the official slow-pitch softball team of the Tony Kornheiser show. He could even wear the shirt as his name won't be on it. See, that's the important thing. I don't, yes. it, when you put my name on, I can't wear it. <laughs> you know, I don't even wear PTI stuff. I mean, I can't do it. But sure, you can name it that. Charlie Burtz. And this is interesting. Uh, in Springfield, Virginia, because Nigel and I have been talking about the James Webb Space Telescope for a few days now. Yes. Though the James Webb Space Telescope unveiled the mission's first science-quality images, a handful of amazingly detailed shots of the deep and distant universe, as well as tantalizing photos of Jupiter, highlighting the faintest, most distant observable galaxies to planets in our viewing range that you can see with the naked eye, it still is not yet able to find the size of the number that Scott Boris <laughs> is seeking from the Nats. <laughs> From Peter Jennings, and not that Peter Jennings, who writes, Emilia Migliaccio won the, 
wins the 120th Women's North and South Amateur at Pinehurst. Your friend Alex P. wrote this story. Okay, so it's an Alex Podligar story. Amelia is an aspiring journalist and not a bad golfer. If you and Michael make it to Winston-Salem and play Old Town, Amelia would be thrilled to join. You can give her advice on her writing and media career plans, and I think she may be able to help you with your bunker play. Michael, that really sounds promising, doesn't it? Yeah, I'm going to have to get about 10 shots. I mean, yeah, she's, if she won that, she's, she's a stud she's player. Cool. Yes. Oh, oh, yeah. Come on. Oh, yeah. From Chad Davis in Dallas, Texas. If you haven't had your fill of yearbook names, I went to Jesuit College Preparatory School in Dallas, Texas. Being the Jesuit Rangers, our newspaper was called The Roundup, and our yearbook was The Last Roundup. Now, that might not be too interesting compared to some of the other names you've received, and I felt I couldn't write in with famous people from my hometown given Dallas's size. But after hearing you and Wilbon wax poetically about how amazing it was for a U.S. Open winner to have gone to his college, I thought this would be a reasonable time to mention two notable, notable alumni from Jesuit. The first is your favorite current national, none other than Josh Bell. And we emphasize current because he could be traded at any time. <laughs> at moment, yes. I hope that doesn't get my email thrown in the trash. The second is the one and only Jordan Spieth. Not only was a few years behind me in high school, but we're also alumni of St. Monica's Catholic School in Dallas and the University of Texas at Austin. When I'm your age, I'll tell my grandchildren that I gave him golf lessons as he followed me from school to school, <laughs> despite the fact that in reality, I can't get the ball off the ground at the driving range. But in all honesty, I think my only claim to fame with him is that I'm pretty sure he had a crush on my younger sister at some point. Does Wilbon have any major winning golfers that followed him from elementary, middle school to high school and college? I'll hang up and listen. There's nothing to listen to. No, <laughs> right. he doesn't. From Robert Harper, on behalf of the entire population of Trinidad and Tobago, happy birthday, Tony. This is from last week. All 1.4 million of us wish you many more in the best of health and memory retention. Oh, today it was 101 degrees and I can't find my AirPods. Not in the best of moods. <laughs> from Lee Gordon in West Hartford, Connecticut and Boynton Beach, Florida. Chuck Culpepper, we refer back to Chuck. Chuck said Greg Norman was like the kid who wasn't invited to the birthday party. Maybe the great Zucchini will feel sympathetic and put on a show for him. Speaking of birthdays, have a happy one. No need to call me. P.S. My high school, Mount Hermon, was an all-boys school. Our yearbook was called Gateway. Our sister school, Northfield, was an all-girls school. The yearbook was called Highlights. A few years after I graduated, the two schools merged. The yearbook for the combined schools became Gemini. I bet Michael's mother-in-law still has her copy. Moni went there, right, to Mount Hermon? Yes. What do you think I'm of sure, that? I'm sure we'll get the update later today from uh, Mr. Hardwick. Yes, I'll have one more here. And this is from Ron Rognes. I've been a fan of yours since I lived in D.C. back in the early 90s and always look forward to your columns in the Post. I grew up in a small town called Black River Falls, Wisconsin. For reasons unknown to this day, our high school yearbook was called The Breeze. Black River Falls has not produced anyone who has achieved any significant level of fame. However, the town itself did find some notoriety some time back when it was featured in a book that sold more than a million copies called Wisconsin Death Trip. It was nothing more than articles from local newspapers back in the late 1800s and early 1900s about people who went insane. It apparently happened a lot. This book was eventually made into a documentary that you can still see today on Amazon Prime. Local residents were excited about it until it came out, and the final scene, I won't ruin the ending, pretty much implied nothing had changed. But my favorite anecdote about my hometown was the kerfuffle over the school district's former motto that appeared on an official school district letterhead for quite a few years. It read, and I am not making this up, Black River Falls Unified School District, Building Realistic Futures. <laughs> Or as I like to paraphrase, doing the best we can with the gene pool you've given us. It remained until a local parent finally complained that perhaps they weren't setting the bar high enough. Anyway, 
Thank you so much for making me laugh. At least smile all these years. I enjoy you on TV. But radio and now the podcast universe is really where you shine. It's wonderful. If you're out on your bike tonight, everyone, as always, do wear white. Who makes you excited, Henry? One soda. One soda. One soda. sent relievers in then Titipas played Sparrow for a set and a half and Isner Shapovalov finished out the match I went to watch Ali Frazier at the garden after four good rounds they said I beg your pardon then Chavalo Bonavina for a couple rounds and then Ken Norton knocked out Henry Cooper in the tenth Dave Roberts is now managing everything. Dave Roberts is now managing the world. I went to see Nicholas and Palmer. After four holes, they gave way to Wisecop and Lanny Watkins. They stayed until the 15th. Then Miller Barber beat Tom Watson by a stroke when Watson sailed it past the green. Dave Roberts is now managing everything. Dave Roberts is now managing the world. Well, if Tony started the show, Pablo can do the Bethesda Bigger Read, and Stugatz can read the emails.